In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As many of you know, before I transferred to seminary at Swanee, I started at the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church, which is located in the ultra-hip and really exciting neighborhood of Chelsea in Lower Manhattan. And sure, living in the heart of New York City took a lot of getting used to, but there was absolutely nothing like it. In a year and a half spent there, there was not nearly enough time to see all that the city had to offer. However, the one thing I remember hearing, I'm not really even sure if there's any truth to it though, is that you were never supposed to stop on the streets of New York City and look up for any extended period of time. Because apparently as the story went, this could cause other people who were walking by to stop and look up as well. And then this crowd would form and people couldn't get by. And if more people kept doing it, then the crowd would spill out into the streets. Traffic would stop, chaos would ensue. And so the admonition went, don't look up. And I can't help but thinking about this when I hear this story from Acts. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? Just think about the lives of the followers of Jesus described in this lesson. Think about their lives they have been living. Only three or so years earlier, they had walked away from their livelihoods to follow this nobody preacher, although a very charismatic one, who over time became pretty popular. But for the most part, his popularity was with the people of the land. That is, these people who couldn't possibly keep all the purity laws required of faithful Jews because they spent their days from dawn till dusk working in the fields or the vineyards, tending sheep, fishing, or doing whatever it was they had to do simply to survive. They tended to be looked down upon by these upper classes who did have all the time and the resources to follow all these complex rituals that the Jewish religious dogma required of them all. Over time, Jesus' popularity with these everyday people started to feel like a threat to those in power, something the disciples surely must have sensed. And Jesus himself finally names the problem when he announces to them that he has to go to Jerusalem where he would be killed. Now, Jesus walked the earth during the Pax Romana, the period of time when the Roman Empire extended from Hadrian's Wall in the north of England all the way south to Morocco and Egypt and all the way east to Iraq. And the Romans were able to maintain control of all that territory for nearly 200 years because they simply didn't tolerate any sort of turmoil among the peoples over whom they ruled. Cause any sort of a stir and you were executed. It wasn't anything personal. They just couldn't allow these small problems to escalate into something larger. So when it appeared to Pilate that a riot was indeed ensuing, it wasn't any real surprise that Jesus had to go. 
Naturally, the disciples were terrified that they might be the ones who were next. So they go into hiding. But just three days later, as we know the story, some of the women in the group chose to go to that tomb to properly anoint the body because it hadn't happened when Jesus' body was laid in the tomb on the eve of the Sabbath. And to their horror, as we know, they found no body to anoint. Jesus was gone, but not for long. He appeared to them sporadically over the next 40 days, the disciples never knowing when or never knowing where he might show up next. And finally, one day, as we just heard, Jesus told them that they were going to receive help from this Holy Spirit so they could be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he was gone for the final time. You can hear the disciples. What are we supposed to do now? What's next? What is he talking about? We all know what's coming next. And Pentecost is only a week away. But they didn't know that. It could have been real easy at this point to say, that's it, I'm done. Head back to my booth or my boat or whatever it is. Go home and Christianity would have died before it was even born. But you see, not knowing what is next is how we live. Most of the time we cope with that pretty well. In fact, we pretty much take it for granted most of the time. But in times of crisis, not knowing what lies ahead of us can be absolutely terrifying. Clearly, the disciples wanted information. They begged Jesus to give them a sense of what was coming, but he refused saying it wasn't for them or for us to know. We are just not made that way. If we knew what the future held, there would be no room in our lives for hope. We'd be little more than robots going through the motions of life rather than really living it. How many times have you found yourself thinking, I wish I didn't know that. Sometimes not knowing makes it easier for us to be our best selves. Unencumbered by whatever disdain or disapproval or fear that can overtake us depending on what it may be that we found out. But hope is not passive. Indeed, it's hope that prevents us from being passive bystanders to our own lives. Hope is what enables us to keep on keeping on, as the saying goes. When everyone and everything seems to be telling us just to give up. Hope is what allows us to see a light at the end of that tunnel that others perceive as nothing but a black hole. We know about Jesus because his terrified followers did not give up, did not scatter to the four winds, but stayed together even after Jesus left them, linked by their common love of this man they had come to know as the Messiah, and a sense that whatever was coming, they would not only be able to handle it, 
but we're expected to. Jesus had told them they would be empowered to carry on his work. They believed him, and their faith was justified. We are called to demonstrate that same sort of confidence when we might find ourselves in difficult situations as well. Maybe it's having to adapt to some new reality in our lives, or having to say goodbye to someone important to us, whether they might be going off to college, or leaving to take a new job in a different part of the country, or has left this life for the next. Parting is always hard. And that's true throughout our lives as connections are made and broken, no matter the circumstances of the separation. But life goes on. We busy ourselves with the different ministries and work that fulfill us while finding these new and different ways to connect to those we no longer get to see face to face. The Celts describe this ebb and flow of life beautifully with the saying that accompanies their round crosses. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is actually to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. In so many ways, Christianity is a religion of paradox. Just think, we worship an all-powerful God who chose to take human form with all of its limitations and live among us. We believe that in giving, we actually receive. In pardoning, we are pardoned. And that in dying, we are born to eternal life. And perhaps strangest of all, unlike other religions whose symbols, the six-pointed star or a crescent moon or a lotus, these symbols suggest beauty and light, Christianity takes its symbol as an instrument of death. But these crosses that grace our church buildings and our altars that many of us wear around our necks are actually this ultimate symbol of hope. Because it's from that shameful cross that God conquered death and despair once and for all. And as each of us begin in our lives to experience and to understand the details and intricacies of Easter and the Ascension, it begins to become undeniably apparent that the cross did not win. Jesus did. We absolutely believe that death did not win. God did. And for that reason, we don't need to know really what our future holds to know that we have won. We are a resurrection people who live with the sure and certain hope that even death is not the end but rather that this life is only the first step in our eternal walk with God.